the point isn't to live without. It's to live an abundant life with the things that serve you. And so it, for me, it's unrealistic for me to only have one bowl and one spoon and one fork in my life. Um, I definitely don't want excess because then who's washing those dishes? Me, right? But I think, I think about minimalism bringing abundance. That was Farai Harold, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 115. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Can I take a quick minute to say some mushy thank you stuff? Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose life experiences and opinions might be different from your own. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people to find us. So thank you so much for taking a second and doing that. And thank you, of course, for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before. I have such a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I want to just take a second to explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple and powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plans for anything. So if that's what you're looking for, sorry, I don't have all of the capital A answers. Um, As a recovering self-help junkie, I'm actually pretty over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too, and that that's why you're here. So yeah, that's not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for new Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. 
So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Farai Harold. Fry is a writer, mother, co-founder of Black Minimalists, and host of their community podcast, where fellow Black minimalists can come together to share how they live a little more mindfully each day. On her blog, thehillbillyafrican.com, Fry documents her adventures in minimalism, eco-friendliness, motherhood, and all-around Black girl magic. In this episode, she shares stories from her childhood, born in Zimbabwe and raised in Botswana, and the culture shock of moving to the U.S. when she was 18 years old. We talk about her minimalist lifestyle, how she first found minimalism and what it means to her, and how she tries to detach from the hustle and bustle that she feels comes hand in hand with living in the West. We talk about money, debt, and the shame around debt, as well as a few of the more problematic elements of the mainstream minimalist movement. She gives me the secrets for her homemade lotion, she talks thoughtfully about her conscious parenting choices, and she shares her routine for using cloth diapers. It's basically just a wealth of fun and information. It's really just a wonderfully honest conversation, and I'm so grateful that Fry took the time to share stories from her life with us, and I hope that you enjoy it too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Fry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with right now. Uh, okay, so it's flu season right now, right? This <laughs> is so I'm really okay. where is this going? I'm into this. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so excited about it, but I'm really into immune boosting foods, herbs, spices. So um, I've been really into discovering what types of herbs and spices and foods are really good for boosting your immunity. Like right now I'm drinking an echinacea and nettle tea because I felt a tickle in my throat and I'm like, dear God, no. So (laughs) that's basically where I'm at is really just researching different ways that food can be your medicine, I guess. Mm, That's so interesting. I, uh, over basically like the New Year's weekend, had a horrible stomach flu and I've never had the stomach flu. I do not recommend the stomach flu. It was awful. And um, I was thinking, I know that's a little bit different as far as immunity goes, but Mm -hmm. um, I've been looking at that too. And a couple people recommended, um, I think it was elderberry tea to Uh, me. Yes. Okay. I'm obsessed. I just made my own elderberry syrup a few days ago. Okay, wait, talk to me about that. How do I make elderberry (laughs) syrup? Okay, so there's different ways, right? And the internet has all these um, recipes, but I made this kind with using my pressure cooker. It's like an electric pressure cooker. And I used to do it stovetop before I got the pressure cooker, but it's essentially one cup of elderberry to four cups of water. And then I add clove, um, ginger, cinnamon like a roll of cinnamon I don't know what it's called I think it's called a roll and then I added rose hips for the first time because rose hips are really high in vitamin c and so I cook it in my pressure cooker for like I think I did eight minutes and when you do it on the stove you do it for longer and then you wait for it to cool down then you strain it and well you add a sweetener typically to give to turn it into that syrup but I give it to my daughter as well so I don't or I di- well, I dilute it heavily for my daughter. But since I don't really give her any sugar, I don't like to add sweetener to it. But people can because it's an acquired taste. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, um, elderberry is an amazing antioxidant. 
um, it's just really good for your immune system. And then all those other things that I talk about, like your ginger and your cinnamon, they're all anti-inflammatory, um, just healing spices. And so I'm all about that. It's like a recent obsession of mine. I mean, like I've always been into it, but it's in overdrive this year. So... Okay, you've convinced me. I'm going to do it. I'm into it. You know how you need to hear something like three times before you actually... <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you can purchase elderberry, which is what I did initially, but it's like here in Kansas, it's like $12 a bottle, and then it's a small bottle, whereas I can spend 4 bucks on the packet of dried elderberries, and boom, I've made it. I've made like one giant bottle of it for myself and my household, and then I typically share it with my friends, so it's really fun. Okay, so what you're saying is that I need to come to Kansas and be your friend because it sounds like you know a million things and I want it to be taught all of them. <laughs> come through, come through. I love sharing. I love sharing. Um, so drop me into your real life. How did you spend the first hour of your day today? Okay, so my new thing when I wake up is not to immediately get out of bed with my daughter because we co-sleep. So I hang out with her, make her laugh, tickle her, cuddle her. And then she's eating a lot more. She's about to be 19 months. So she's really into the word snack. It's her favorite word right now. So to get her out of bed, I'm like, do you want a snack? And then that typically gets her out of bed. And then I go, I'm, I also make her an applesauce that she gets every morning that has other immune boosting herbs. I'm sounding so hippie dippy right now. No, I'm, I'm into <laughs> it. Give me all of it. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so I put her applesauce in a bowl, and as she's walking, she's really slow. Obviously, she's a toddler. She, I, I brought my bed down to the ground so that she can get on it and off it easily for her own independence. So she gets off the bed. And we'll walk to the living room. And by the time, like, she sees her applesauce and her water bottle with her probiotic in it, she will then, um, uh, she'll, like, kind of play around. And then in that process, I'll get her into her room, change her diaper. She'll sit down and feed herself. She's very independent. Like, we did baby-led weaning, so she never really let us feed her. (laughs) She just wants to eat feed herself with her hand or with her spoon. And so I just let her have at the applesauce until she's done. And then today we read books. This is all in the first hour. So yeah, we read a book together. We played a little bit. And then I started to prepare for my podcast that I did. Mm, That sounds, it's funny. I love talking to people whose lives are really different than mine. I don't have kids. And so I can't relate to that at all. And I'm always so Mm -hmm. fascinated by just how other people do life. I mean, obviously it's why I have a podcast where I can ask people questions, I guess. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I'm sorry if some of these questions are going to be like really stupid, but you mentioned um, co-sleeping. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit more about that or why you decided to do that? Sure. So co-sleeping is essentially where you share a bed with your child. And the reason why I did it, my daughter was in the NICU for nine days. And while she was in the NICU, they told us, you know, in the hospital, they tell you, um, your child should always be alone. It's the ABCs. They should be alone by themselves in their crib. And so that's what I was told. So when I brought her home from the NICU, I was, I tried to put her in her little bassinet in the bed next to me, but I was terrified of SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. And so I didn't sleep very well and I was exhausted all the time because I I had to listen for her breathing, right? 
and we were breastfeeding. We were trying to breast get her latched onto the breast after she had been um, away from me. Well, we were together, but she was ill, so we couldn't nurse as much as we wanted to. I was pumping. And so she ended up, I couldn't sleep, and she wasn't sleeping very long, and I was exhausted. So one day, I just told my partner, Anthony, my husband, I said, I'm going to lay down with her in the bed. You're going to watch me so I don't roll over on her because I was terrified because that's what they told us that that's what you did when you close up is that you were going to crush your baby. And so I laid with her kind of like in the crook of my arm, my boob in her mouth. So she had access to it. And then when she was done, she'd break her latch and she'd sleep peacefully. And I slept amazing. And I never had the problems that people talk about about oh you'll never get any sleep the first year of your kid's life like yeah sometimes when she's teething or she's going through an illness we'll have rough sleep but I slept amazing because she was right there in the bed with me and then I was like this is instinctual for her to sleep in the crook of my arm and then I thought back to you know growing up in Zimbabwe growing up in Botswana I kids co-sleep with their parents all the time or they co-sleep with other female relatives like I remember sleeping with my cousins and my nieces and my nephews that were younger than I was and it was completely normal to bed share and to co-sleep and so now so for a little bit because my husband sleeps like a zombie I didn't let him into the bed with us he had to sleep on the couch (laughs) and but once I she was older um he came back and so now we all we co-sleep and we share the same bed and it's great she can hang out with her dad when she wants she can hang out with me when she wants she can nurse she gets she sleeps through the night and we both get adequate sleep so Mm, that's so interesting I find talking to friends that are mothers Mm -hmm. often they'll I don't know if complain is the right word but sort of complain about how intense people's opinions are like this is what you have to do with your child or else right and it's always like contradictory and I don't know I always find it really refreshing when people just talk about this is what works for me this is what I did you know it's I don't know yeah without sort of like the dogma attached to it yeah we do a lot of well in my experience as someone who didn't grow up in the U.S. there's a lot of intense judging and there's a lot of intense like opinions as well as I don't know to be a mom you almost have to be a martyr like you're never gonna get any sleep and you're gonna look like shit for the next five years of your kid's life because they're gonna drain and suck the life out of you and blah why did you you know they make it seem like kids are these giant suck holes and yeah you may love them and they may be awesome but this like the general consensus is that kids are draining right and they are challenging but it's been an amazing experience for me that I feel really, really lucky and blessed to even, I like, I never fucking wanted kids. I never wanted a, a kid. I never wanted to be a mom. And then it happened. And now I'm like, Jesus, this is kind of awesome. So mm-hmm. I don't look at it. Uh, I, I kind of don't like the way that the Western, and I'm going to refer to the U.S. a lot as the West, but yeah, as the way that we show motherhood, And yeah, it's not that great. So you just touched a tiny, tiny bit on your childhood, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I'm always particularly interested in sort of grounding in a sense of place and sort Uh of like for you to describe, you know, where you were born and a little bit about that. And then obviously it's quite different now. So sort of how you went from one to the other. I'm really interested in that. Sure. So my dad is Kansan 
and my mother is Zimbabwean. My dad moved to Zimbabwe. Uh, I don't even know because I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> he moved there when he was uh, maybe in the 80s, I think he moved there. And shortly afterwards, he met my he, he met my mom and he was a pharmacist. He worked at a hospital. My mom worked in the hospital that he that he practiced at and they hit it off. And not too long after that, I came into the picture. <laughs> and so I was born in Kariba, which is this gorgeous place in Zimbabwe, which is near Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls is, um, I mean, it's world known, but not many people are familiar with African geography. And so Victoria Falls is like this gorgeous waterfall um, on the border between Zimbabwe and Zambia, I believe. So, yeah, that's where I was born. I don't remember much about Zimbabwe because shortly after I was born, a few years later, we had to move to Botswana. And that's where I grew up. So, yes, I'm Zimbabwean. I speak Shona, but I also was raised in Botswana and I speak Setswana. And that's where most of my childhood was at. That's where I remember. And Botswana is this amazing, gorgeous, peaceful country, semi-arid climate. So it's hot most of the year. And... I moved to the U.S. when I turned 18 because even though I was um, Zimbabwean by birth, I was American by nationality because you take the nationality of your dad. And so right around the time that I was 18, Botswana, they had this policy where when you're 18, you have to, sh you know, you have to prove what you're doing in the country. Like they, quote unquote, don't want any, they don't want people living there not doing something with their life. And it's a small country, like, when you think states, most states are even bigger than some African countries. So it's a really small country. And my dad didn't want me to go to this, the college, the university in Botswana. He wanted me to come to school here. So when I was 18, I moved here. And I've been here. Now I'm 26. So I've been here all this time. Well, no, I'm not 26. I'm 27. I just turned 27. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not used to it yet. I'm still not used to it yet. But yeah, so... I've been in Kansas this whole time, and I love it. It's this part of me that, you know, it's the other half of my heritage, I guess. So I equally love, I love all three places. I consider all three places my home. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. What did you find was the biggest culture shock when you came to Kansas? Oh, my God. Everything I mean, was a culture everything, shock. Right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> JFK, I had... There was I had seen more people at JFK than I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I was just in one terminal, right? I the food for the first six months I could only drink distilled water, Fanta strawberry, and fried chicken wings. <laughs> Cause those are the only things that tasted remotely normal. Everything tasted like chemicals and plastic to me. And I have it's only now in my now that I have a kid and I'm kind of becoming more health conscious that I recognize that I ate a really balanced diet as a kid. You know, like we had a garden in our backyard, which I hated tending to. Like I hated watering the garden and picking vegetables. That was my least favorite chore growing up. And well, no, there are other chores that I hated, but it was one of my least favorite chores. And I, but I took that for granted. The eating one of the main exports of Botswana is beef. So I always had access to good quality grass-fed cattle. I always had, you know, quote-unquote organic, even though it wasn't organic. It was just good food. And so coming here, I was like, why does everything taste like this? And my taste buds adjusted 
and then I adopted a Western diet, much to my body's horror. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think the food, and then the independence. Like people here are super independent. In that, the when I first came here, there was no sense of community. Mm-hmm. I felt really lonely. Like back home, I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. Which when I when I was a teenager, it sucked. But I couldn't do anything without it getting back to my parents. You know, I couldn't act a fool because someone somewhere was gonna know who I was. <laughs> and get ga- and it, and you know the whole it takes a village to raise a child. Like someone would have gathered me really quickly if I was out there acting a fool on my parents' behalf, or it would have gotten back to my parents. So yeah, yeah I've heard similar things from other folks who grew up elsewhere that the sort of I don't know the way that we put individualism on mm-hmm. a pedestal here and even mm-hmm. you know uh the single family homes and everyone's mm-hmm. like so this is my space and you're in your home and then you're in your car and it's just these like individual boxes where there isn't a lot of sort of overlap with other people unless it's very conscious and how mm-hmm. I mean obviously there's a good and bad side to everything but I frequently have heard from other friends very similar things to what you just shared that there's something that they really miss and there's like a longing for that type of community. Oh yeah. And it's something that, you know, I want to cultivate for myself here that I will, I have been cultivating maybe unknowingly and knowingly for a while because people, yeah, people here are super lonely. And actually I was reading this article that talked, there's now a minister of loneliness in England because it's like an epidemic there. And I don't know if that's a side effect of industrialization an urbanization, I don't know, but yeah, I was like super lonely and that led to depression and I had crazy cabin fever, which I didn't even know was a thing until I had it because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I was really overwhelmed by how, um, and I, I lived it, I lived with my brother here in a rural town in Kansas when I first moved here and there was one Walmart and it was the biggest store I'd ever seen in my life. And I was blown away that things could be open 24-7 and that things were accessible so cheaply. And, uh, yeah, it seems great. But at the things that it costs us and the people who, who make these things for us, it blew my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that's an interesting segue because I obviously found you through, um, I mean, your blog and your work around minimalism. And I'm interested to hear, like, I mean, a lot of things, but sort of when that word or that, I guess, like terminology like came up for you. And um, I guess maybe even before that, when you use the word minimalism, what do you mean? Like, what's your definition of that? So I guess to me, my definition of minimalism is being conscious of what I bring into my life. Um, being conscious of not only what I'm spending with my money, but to friendships, to one, you know, anything really, I try to evaluate anything that I bring into my life and make sure that it's serving me or it's bringing me joy in some purpose. Like, I got really caught up in the excess that I seem, seem that I know is pretty common in, in this country. And it, it had me miserable. So essentially, I think I'm just going to segue because this makes sense. But how I be, got into minimalism was... I was really overwhelmed by everything that I owned, right? I was 25 
was I 25? Yeah, I was 25 when I found out I was pregnant. And I was like, okay, I have this kid. I need to make room for this kid. And I had no room for her. Like, every nook and cranny of my house was filled with stuff. And it wasn't even that bad in terms of, you know, hoarders or clutter or anything like that. But I really felt like I had no space. And I was like, okay, I need to get a storage unit. And I was like, I'm 25. How do I have a, why do I need room for a storage unit? I shouldn't have that much stuff. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'm not organizing things well enough. So like every good millennial, I went to YouTube and I started. (laughs) Like every good millennial, you're hilarious. (laughs) And so I started researching organization videos and I found this really great YouTuber. Well, several great YouTubers, all of them white. And I, a few of them recommended the, the famous book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. So I went to my local library, borrowed it, read it. And then I also watched the movie, The Minimalist, the documentary that's on Netflix. And even though it was great, it didn't really resonate with me that much. But that's essentially how I discovered minimalism. It's really not about having these blank walls and this dark aesthetic. I mean, and this, you know, blank walls and I only have one spoon and one bowl because I'm such a minimalist. It's not really like that. But it's really about just making sure that everything that I have in my home serves me, brings me joy, that I'm conscious of how how I'm spending my money, what I'm bringing into my house. Like before I used to just, oh, this is only four bucks. I don't really need this, but it's so cheap. I should get it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's how I had a house full of garbage and stuff that I wasn't touching was because, oh, it's, this is such a good deal. Yeah. And I was essentially screwing myself. So after you started doing this research, right, on YouTube, <laughs> read, you know, the big books, doc, I've read that book, I've watched that documentary, right? So I, I've definitely <laughs> seen and, and read those things also. What were your first tangible steps? Because it's interesting, I, I love your definition of minimalism and to hear you talk about being conscious about what comes into your life, not just when it comes to stuff. And yet I feel like the starting point and the thing that minimalism is often known for does have to do with physical, tangible items that take up space mm-hmm. in our home. So I, I'm interested in what your first steps were and sort of what the evolution was from there. Well, yeah, mine was very much your textbook stuff, right? I went through my closet. I was heavily pregnant and I had my friend come over. I had a closet full of things bursting at the seams and then I had stuff in like, I had like my winter stuff in containers in the garage and then we had a hall closet that was full of stuff too and then I was just overwhelmed. So I got, I went through everything and I reduced it to where only, I only had clothes in one side of my closet. So not, nothing in the hall closet, nothing in the, uh, in the garage, everything all fit into one closet with room. And I was like, Oh my God, this feels amazing. And so I, then I just became a savage and I really went through books, kitchenware, shoes. And that kind of transpired into Like, I really wanted to write. The writing has always been a passion of mine, but I've kind of always beat myself up and compared myself to others. And so I wasn't writing as much. And then minimalism just, not only did it get rid of physical clutter, but it was also really inspiring to me to have these clear spaces, these peaceful spaces. I finally had an idea of what I wanted my, my home to look like. 
and it was really inspiring for me and so that encouraged me to start writing again it encouraged me to address my my um relationship with money which is a constant journey with me but yeah it it, it seeps into other aspects of your life like a black minimalist we talk about how fi- it will seep into your finances it will seep into your relationships you'll maybe you'll probably end up purging a couple of people that weren't you know that weren't there for you or who aren't there for you and so it's kind of a whole life mm-hmm. thing What have you found that's been most surprising for you as you've started, you know, the last couple of years of doing this? Well, that I'm able to do it. I think um, I grew up, well, I just always was, I had this this thought that I wasn't going to be good with money and that I wasn't going to be great with money and that some people are just the way that they are and that's just how they are. But I think now that I know I, it's given me more grace with myself and more allowed me to be kinder to myself, which I think is super important. And mm-hmm. I'm only realizing that now, but I, it's allowed me to be gentler with myself and to recognize and to fully like realize the things that I love and the things that, that I don't love and that are serving me and that don't serve me. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I mean, there's a lot more about minimalism that I want to talk about, but since you brought up um, money and your relationship with money, that's like probably my favorite topic. <laughs> like want to talk <laughs> about money all the time with everyone. And it's uh-huh. funny. It often comes up um, whenever I ask folks, whether it's in, you know, the, the podcast listeners or just in general, what they wish people were more open and honest about. I feel like money is always the winning answer. It's like something uh-huh. that it touches every single one of our lives and yet nobody really wants to talk about. Um, sure. So when you say, say that starting to, you know, live in a more minimalist way and make these changes caused you to sort of have to confront your relationship with money. Can you get a little bit more specific, whatever you're comfortable sharing? Sure. All day. I think that (laughs) I also appreciate it when people are honest about money, because I don't think, I don't think that we're as honest as we could be. So essentially I had a full-time job, um, where I was making, I was a salaried position where I was making good money, but for some reason, I was struggling just as much as I was when I was a broke-ass college kid working three jobs. And I, and really, when I got that full-time job, I was like, this is it. This is great. I'm never going to have to worry. I can get whatever I want. And then when I was struggling, I was like, what the hell? Like, why is this me? And really, I didn't know how to live within my means, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was spending money on things that I didn't need and I had all this medical debt from my the beginning of my pregnancy when my insurance was all kind of messed up and I think that was my I was just living in fear of the medical debt and you know being in debt can be scary and so being um, minimalism encouraged me to kind of just like sit down and figure it out so I I gathered everything that I owed and I looked at it and I was like, oh crap, what do I do? And so luckily enough, there's a local organization here that kind of helps people get out of debt. Like they will consolidate all your debts into one payment and then you give them the money and they'll pay your, they'll pay your creditors. I believe that's what they're called. Mm -hmm. And so I went through this whole painful process because it's painful because you know there's a lot of shame and guilt attached to it and so paying I and then so yeah I did that and then 
I paid it off. Well, luckily me and my husband, we were able to pay it off even before like it was due. But having it all in one place, having a professional help me look at it um, and work through it was really helpful for me. And that was growth because a year before that, I would have been like, eh, fuck it. It'll be all right. Yeah. So... I mean, there's definitely like a a sort of self-protection thing. I think Mm -hmm. when we don't want to face what's true, I mean, this is, I can relate to this, not just with money, but this is the same thing that happened with me when I eventually quit drinking. It's like no amount of turning away from the truth makes it not true. (laughs) Exactly. At some point you have to be like, well, okay. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I I agree with you about um, the, shame and stigma around debt, which I actually think is hilarious because almost everyone is or was in debt at some point. Exactly. I think it's almost impossible unless you're completely off the grid to not be in debt in some way, shape or form. Right. Right. Or unless you come from, you know, some crazy money. Oh, exactly. So yeah, I, there's this whole thing about how you, you need to be realistic about the life that you have. This Nicole from Frugal Chic Life, she said this to me today. She said, there's something about not being able to live the life that you have right now, but we get caught up in living the life that we want to have, which is fine, right? You should aspire to something, but don't go out and buy a bunch of heels and a bunch of little black dresses which you can't afford because you want to be able to wear them someday. Mm-hmm. Like really just sitting where you are and finding that joy and that making peace with where you're at. Yeah. I, that's funny that you use that as the example. Um, I, a couple of years ago, I had to have a talk with myself of, okay, Nicole, you work from home alone. You're not really a fancy person. You don't really go out. You go to bed at like nine o'clock. What do you need these clothes for? Like, <laughs> just like, for real. and not to say that, you know, it's fine to want to look nice or want to do whatever. But yeah, I think your point is really insightful and valid about actually just be honest about the life that you have and the things that are great about that. And what if your spending and choices aligned with who you actually are instead of like, I, you know, I keep thinking I'm going to be someone who does yoga. I'm not, I'm just not. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And embracing it. I like, yeah, I think that you, if you want to aspire to something, you should, but you have to be realistic in the place that you are. Like when I was in school, um, in college, I had, you know, I was a student leader. So I had all these, you know, events that you're going to and I couldn't, for some reason, I couldn't wear the same dress again. Like I had to have a new dress every single time that I went to a different event. And that's, that's common for most people that I know is that every time they have something, they have to go get an outfit for it. And that is now that that's completely ridiculous to me because I had all these dresses sitting there that had been worn twice in their lifetime since I've had them or once or had never even been worn. And now this is not for everyone, but I have one dress that I wear. This is my event dress. And every time I wear it, it's great. I'm photographed in it. I look amazing. And then I can put it away until the next time I have to wear it again. And it's completely fine. Like the world isn't going to fall down or, you know, these, these big things that we tell ourselves like, oh, no, you have to do this and you have to do that. No, you don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a really good point. And 
yeah, what you said about like the stories that we tell ourselves, okay, what, what's actually going to happen if someone sees you wear the same thing twice? Like, okay, exactly. <laughs> nobody cares. You know? No, they really don't. <laughs> so as you were getting rid of um, sort of all those different categories of things that you mentioned earlier, what was the toughest thing for you to pare down? Well, like every good nerd, probably books, right? Um, <laughs> I think I, I kept the classics, um, the classics to me. Um, but I was really realistic because I told myself in order, like a smart person reads books and a smart person has books in their home. That's what I, that's how somehow what I got from gleaned from society. And so there were books that I had bought that I told myself that I was going to read that I never got to reading. There was books that I, that I. I read once and then never read again. And I saw, I was like, no, I need to be realistic. Yeah, this may look good on my bookshelf, but I'm never going to freaking read it again. So I went from two large bookcases to one small one. Mm -hmm. And that was hard. But I mean, everything I think was hard because I had, I was attached to my things. I wasn't attached in like the hoarder sense. Like it's really connected to my emotional well-being. But I think it's hard, especially when things cost a lot of money. You know, it's really hard for you to get rid of them, even if you're not using them, even if you don't touch them. You're just thinking about the money that you lost. But I think, I don't know if it's KonMari or this other book that I read where they're like, just make peace with it. You got the lesson that you needed from it. And so, yeah, that's how I tried to look at it. And Everything was hard. Mm -hmm. I can relate to the book thing a lot. And I think what you said about it's not even only about this stuff. It's often about how our identity is tied into this stuff that, oh, you know, if I have all of these books and especially all of these certain types of books, then people will see them and think, you know, X, Y, or Z thing about me. It's like who we want to be perceived as. It's like, how are people going to know that I'm smart if they don't visually see that I've read all these books? And I'm like, okay, well, that's not a good enough reason to record these things. And, but it is, it's just, it's funny how once you start looking at your stuff and like stepping back objectively and, you know, what image am I trying to create? And, you know, what do I want people, how, in which ways do I want people to think that I'm special based on the things that I own? Exactly. Now my bookcase serves me it has books that I need that I refer to that I love that bring me joy and that's it and and everyone you know there's different strokes for different folks some people are going to have and love their book their collections and their books and hold on to them and that's fine too I don't think that I I don't encourage um this kind of living in 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 misery because you got rid of something but definitely really honestly assessing the things that you have in your life yeah and, and I and letting it be individual that, you know, what's, and same thing with money, you know, what someone really values spending money on might be something that I don't value and vice versa. And that that's okay. It's being willing, I think, to, with minimalism, something that I think about a lot, and I would kind of like your take on as well, is there's definitely a, a subset of the community or folks that call themselves minimalists, especially online, that it almost seems like competitive minimalism. You know, like who owns the least amount of stuff, right? Like I only own 50 things and they all fit in this backpack. And if that really brings you joy, that's awesome. Go for it. But it's like, it's not about who can have the least amount of things. Oh yeah. I, which is why I didn't really enjoy, well not enjoy because I learned a lot from the documentary, but I guess how I couldn't relate like to the documentaries when people were saying, oh, I'm homeless on purpose. 
And I'm like, dude, there's literally freaking people who would do anything to have a stable home. And I don't know, it felt like a lot of, I felt really wishy-washy, you know, almost the, the, the point isn't to live without. It's to live an abundant life with the things that serve you. Mm-hmm. And so it, for me, it's unrealistic for me to only have one bowl and one spoon and one fork in my life. Um, I definitely don't want excess because then who's washing those dishes? Me, right? But I think I think about minimalism bringing abundance. And I don't think and that's why a lot of people who don't like the movement typically don't like the movement. And it's because they feel like it's the glamorization of poverty, which I don't like. Mm, okay, wait. So yeah, let's dig into that a little bit because I feel there's so many different sort of conflicting viewpoints or ways to come about this. And I feel like anytime a movement gains popularity and becomes trendy, that parts of it become problematic, right? Like, of course, just yeah. as anything. And I mean, I would definitely say that minimalism has been co-opted for capitalist gain in a lot of ways, right? Not to just oh, yeah, like be cynical, sure. but of course, you know, it's like, well, if you can only own one thing, you have to own this like incredibly expensive, you know, whatever. Yeah, and to your yeah. point, the criticism of minimalism as, you know, oh, well, it's just glamorizing poverty. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit more, or at least your thoughts about that? Sure. So um, we talked about this in Black Minimalists, but we say that our grandmas and our ancestors kind of practiced minimalism already like they're the original practitioners of it of living minimally of living within their means of being realistic about what they wanted and what they needed especially well for in my experience women of color anyway like um being conscious of only having what they so my dad died a few years ago he died three years ago and when i went back home for his funeral when I was in his, when I was in their kitchen, my parents' kitchen, they had the same pots that I used growing up. And they had the same cups, forks, and it blew my mind. I was like, these things have lasted this long? And like, how? I don't even have the same pots. I'm probably on my third set of pots and pans since I've been in this country. And yeah, those probably, the, that was because the two that I had were like super quality and stuff. But like, our parents were, well, our ancestors, our grandparents and stuff like that, they were they they were skilled at living within their means. And so I feel like a lot of people, um, anyway, who talk about the glamorization of poverty being that's what minimalism does, I think, yeah, you're right. We've kind of forgotten about why people are minimal to begin with, right? It's It's because they want a peace in their life. And it's not really about owning one thing. Like, yeah, you can have, if you have money to buy another set of pots and pans, but you don't need it, then there's no need for it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I don't know. I think I'm getting a little bit lost in what I'm trying to say. But I think that, yes, minimalism has been co-opted, but it's it's existed always. And now we just have a name for it, which I think is powerful. Because when you give a name to something, then it allows people to to explore it for themselves better. It's not so much an abstract concept, you know? And so, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I have feelings about this that I feel like I have a hard time articulating, but I guess maybe I'll give it a shot because I think that you just did the same. And one of the beautiful things about honest conversations is we don't have to have 
all of the answers, right? It's just kind of yeah. talking about it. And I think anytime, you know, a movement or a lifestyle reaches a certain tipping point, like there's always going to be people who practice it differently, right? There's going to be yeah. parts of it that are, like we said, co-opted for capitalist gain. There's going to be parts that aren't about that at all. And I think mm-hmm. I look at sort of the criticisms, like you said, of, you know, that have been made about, oh, you know, minimalism is just glamorizing poverty. And I think maybe that's true the way that some folks are approaching it, Um, especially when you get into uh, this is how you should live or this, you know, anytime it gets like dogmatic, you know, potentially, but I also, I don't know, I think maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but even if that's true, like if there are really privileged people who are sort of romanticizing this simple living, right. Or even to the extent of glamorizing poverty, kind of like why do people care because they're still, I don't know. I don't even know really know what I'm trying to say, but like that they're still using less resources, right. And like not making as big of an environmental impact in, even if it's, I don't know, maybe I'm like being not articulate, but it almost seems like kind of an easy throwaway, like, Oh, well that's just glamorizing poverty. So that has no use. And it's almost like a reason to then just like keep being a mega consumer of, and like pursuing the American dream, right? Like as we're sold it, that sure, like the movement can be sort of problematic, but also at the heart of it, I feel like it's always worth sort of examining our consumption of things and our relationship with things. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, let me look and let me give it to you this way. So you have, you, have you heard of bag packers? I have not. Okay, so it's essentially these, like, white people that travel the world backpacking, but they, they, how they fund it is through begging on the streets. And, and so they go to these countries and they, like, sit on the side of streets and they beg for money and then they use that money to survive in these countries. And it's typically white people. And I think the minute, when you go into, if you look at a minute, well, first off, Particularly, I think that some people who live minimal lives, quote unquote, minimal lives out of poverty, that they that's why maybe they have a problem with minimalism, which I completely understand. Like maybe, you know, they want they want different for themselves. And so maybe that's why they might equate minimalism with glamorization of a situation that they are not happy with sure not saying it's their fault or anything like that but that could be a reason right another reason I feel like is that like in the movie there was that one guy that was homeless on purpose he's looked at as being I don't know a thought a thought leader maybe or eccentric or whatever but as a person of color who's homeless is not given that same grace yeah so that's another reason why I think people um, have a problem with it. Yeah, I mean, well, and also if we look at like the trendiest, you know, whatever blogs in the minimalist space, like it is often privileged white folks. Oh yeah, for sure. So I mean, that's a good segue into your co-found a co-founder of the Black Minimalists Community. Can you talk about what the community is and why you helped to create it? Like, what does it mean to you? I'd love to. So right when I was feeling so inspired by my foray into minimalism and all that good stuff, I was like, you know, there's not enough people that look like me. My background is in mass media. And so I'm really conscious of the accurate representation and diverse representation of people of color. And so I was like, you know what, I'm finally going to 
put my toe out there and blog about my experiences. And because I feel like it's important for someone who looks like me to be out there. And I, along the way, I found Yolanda, who is the OG founder of the Black Minimalists. And me and her, and along with another um, two other women, amazing women, Kenya and Anika, we got together and we brainstormed how we could form this community that provided a space for minimalists or black minimalists or anyone really trying to find, I don't know, representation, people who look like them, people that have the same cultural experiences as them, like where they could come and discuss and learn about minimalism. And so that's essentially what started Black Minimalists. We started off with an ebook. Um, sharing the stories of minimalists from around the country, black minimalists from around the country. And that segued into our website and our podcast and various other things that we've done along the way. We're just really, really about community and simplicity and freedom, like allowing black people to be free of consumerism and capitalism and all these other things just allowing us to be free to express ourselves, providing a safe space for stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that's how Black Minimalists started in a nutshell. Yeah. What have you learned? I mean, I'm sure you've learned a lot, but what's been the most meaningful thing that you've learned either from the process of creating the community or from the folks in the community, maybe even from the co-founders? Like, What stands out to you as a way that doing this has helped and changed you? Well, just how amazingly diverse and amazing black people are and how we show up in the world. Like, I'm, I mean, I live in Kansas and <laughs> all my, mm, other than a few, like most of my black friends are online. And so I feel really isolated sometimes in some of the experiences that I have. Not to um, bash any of my white homies, I love y'all. Um, but <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, I experience the world differently than they do. I mean, of and course. So, so yeah, yeah, Kansas does not, I mean, I, I don't know, have I ever, I, I've maybe been there once, but I don't really, I don't know, I don't really have any memories of Kansas. I think I like passed through on a road trip once as a child. It doesn't strike me in my mind as being a very culturally diverse, you know, racially diverse place. That's not what I think of first when I think of Kansas. Yeah, right. Yeah, not, well, not in the places that I live in at. And as I love the state, I feel such a, such a warmth, like I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Maybe Hawaii. Okay, maybe Hawaii, but I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the U.S. Um, but yeah, sometimes I feel really isolated. And so just how welcoming, like I didn't know Anika or Yolanda or Kenya from from Eve when I first met them. And how quickly we formed this unit together to, you know, to, to provide this. That was mind-blowing to me. I loved it. I loved it. I love just being around people that get me. We, we met for the first time. We did a meetup in D.C. Um, basically, we helped build this community garden in this area in D.C. And we, we'd been talking digitally for, you know, six, seven months. And then for us to get together and just click like that. You know, we are, we're all completely different women. We're all into different things. And, but it just felt really good. So I think the community was really important to me. It was what I was looking for. 
When you think about the future of the community and the work that you're doing, do you have sort of a, a big dream or when you think about where this could go or what you would love to create or help happen, you know, what comes to mind? Oh, heck yeah. I'm a dirty hippie. I want a commune. I want like, I want us to get land somewhere and to like live and be self-sustainable and off the grid and like garden and grow our own food and deliver our own babies and just like, I may, you know, and not everyone is going to vibe with that. There's urban minimalists, industrial minimalists who are not f- about that farm life. But I think we all, in some shape or form, want a, a physical, tangible community. That would be One. incredible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, if and when that happens, we're going to have to have another conversation where you tell me all about that. that oh, yeah, amazing. for sure. Um, do you have any advice for someone who's interested in simplifying their life and sort of doesn't know where to start? Oh, yeah. Um, I would say write down or, th- or visualize like what it is that you want for yourself. Like, what do you want? So simplifying their life, right? Are they trying to simplify their work life, their school life, their home? So really identifying it will help nail down what you need to conquer. So I knew what I needed in in the time that I was discovering minimalism is because I, I needed my home to be a different space than what it was. It wasn't serving me at all. It was bringing me stress. And so I, I literally went room by room and I wrote down everything that I needed to do in that room to get it to where I wanted to be. So bedroom, I wrote, go through closets, get rid of stuff, move this bookcase. Like I literally wrote down and things will come organically, like something that you may have thought that you needed to do, you won't end up doing or whatever. But really nailing it down, I went room by room and I figured everything out. And so I think being honest with yourself, being gentle with yourself, and also doing it because you need it, not because the, like if you search minimalism on Pinterest, there's this aesthetic, right? But rejecting that aesthetic and really thinking about what is functional for you. So mm-hmm. if you have kids, if you have kids and you have messy kids, um, it's unrealistic for you to have a stark palette and maintain it. You're going to need to bring some vibrancy and some, you know, toys and stuff for your kids. So it's like completely different for every single person and everyone has different lives, different emotional needs, different functional needs. So being honest, I think is really important. Yeah. I love your continued emphasis on what, you know, being honest about what works for you. Cause I think, yeah, again, like with sort of the trendy side of minimalism, like you said, going on Pinterest, it's all like everything's super white and really clean lines and really modern. And maybe that is someone's aesthetic and that's awesome. But I think it would be easy to say, oh, you know, minimalism is this specific look. It's owning this amount of things. It's following, you know, these four thought leaders, like, who are white or whatever, you know, and like, that's what it has to be. Otherwise it's not for me. And to be able to take a step back and like, look at the heart of what minimalism is, which you defined so well. And to like, just be honest with yourself about what that's going to look like for you. It's going to look different for someone that has four kids than it is for someone who's maybe single and lives in a big city or, you know, like it's, it's going to be different for different people. And, you know, uh, that super stark, 
white aesthetic, you know, like I can appreciate that it's beautiful, but that's not me. So if I, yeah, like I don't want to have to do that, you know? Well, yeah, no, Ro of Brown Kids, she had this really good conversation with me about how you should address the functional and emotional needs of a space. So like for me, when I lived in, before we purchased the house that we lived in, we rented. And I hated those rental spaces. I did not like the way that they were furnished. I was always beating myself up about how it didn't look like how I wanted it to look. It didn't look like my freaking Pinterest board had a problem with it. And it was always because I was like, okay, in a living room, there's a coffee table and a sofa and a TV. And that's not what my life needs. That's not what my life, like, I don't need a freaking coffee table in my house. And that's different for everyone. But I need a big open space in my living room. And typically a coffee table gets in the way of that. And so really addressing what I needed from a room. I need my living room to also be my workout space. And so I can't move a coffee table in and out of my living room every single time. And I don't really use a coffee table or it's just in a place that attracts clutter and coffee mugs and and doesn't really you know it's not really serving me it's just bringing me more more garbage in my life so I was like okay that needs to leave and so that was one thing and then I thought that I needed to have a giant headboard for aesthetics right I needed to have a headboard in my bedroom and it wasn't serving me and so I had to get rid of it and now I love my bed so much more now that it's on the ground yeah yeah it's I mean, I'm, I'm going to reiterate, reiterate this again, and it almost sounds silly saying it because, of course, right? Like, own the things that are useful and beautiful to you mm-hmm. and, like, be individual. And, like, it sounds really silly almost and really simple. And yet, if I'm honest with myself, and I think this is true for a lot of folks, certainly friends that I've had conversations with, and it's certainly what you're saying, too, that, like, these are the things that often get overlooked, right? We're sold a certain image, you know, often subconsciously, you know, whether it's oh, yeah. Pinterest, whether it's a different kind of advertising, whether it's a celebrity thing or whatever. And it's just so easy to unconsciously buy into this this is what my life is supposed to look like, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, I need to have a gym membership or I need to eat this or I need to, you know, and like just taking those moments of pause to be like, wait, hang on. Like, did I ever even consciously decide to do this? And exactly. it's like, I feel silly saying that. Cause it's like, well done, Nicole, ask yourself some questions. Don't just like blindly follow people. But I think it's more common than people want to admit. Oh yeah. I, I have this thing uh, where I have to address crutches in my life. Right. So, um, anytime I feel like, I can't live without something, then I have to address why I feel like I can't live without that thing. So, Can you give me then, an example? Oh, yes. I have an entire blog post about it okay, somewhere. Okay. And then, and then, um, but, okay, so I used to waitress. And whenever I wore makeup, I got more tips than I did without makeup. And I wasn't particularly good at putting on makeup. Like, I'm half white, half black, and my skin tone is this weird color and it changes really quickly, you know, depending on the light or, and so, yeah, like I know I was almost wearing the wrong shade every single time and I, but it bothered me and I was like, okay, so maybe I am, I look better without, with makeup on. I should never leave the house without makeup. And so it always looked, and it was always something simple like mascara and blush, but I felt like I couldn't leave the house without it. I had to put on a coat of mascara. And if I didn't, then it would bother me the whole day. And then that started to bother me because I'm like, why Why do I feel the 
that I need this thing in my life so much. And so I challenged myself, no makeup, no mascara for like a month. And then afterwards, I felt like a lot more at peace with myself and more and understanding that I don't really need this thing to feel beautiful. And if people, you know, can't see me and accept me and think that I'm beautiful the way that I am, then that's on them. That's not on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, yeah, I've, I've addressed all kinds of crutches from body hair to, you know, shaving, all those things like we feel like we need to do. So, yeah, anytime the sort of gut reaction is, I could never do that, right? I could never, mm-hmm. I could never get rid of that. I could never give that up. I could never, you know, just that an instant, if that's your reaction, it's like, huh, what's underneath that, right? And at the end of the day, it might be, this makes me happy and I don't want to change it, you know, but exactly. that's different than I feel trapped by this thing and like I have to shave my legs, otherwise, this terrible thing's going to happen, you know? Exactly. And now I have mascara and when I wear it, I wear it because I want to, not because I feel like I need to. Yeah. And that's a completely different experience for me now than it was back when I felt like I needed it. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of what you're saying seems like such a mindful approach. And I know that mindfulness and slow living is something that you care about and talk about. And I think that mindfulness is one of those words that people hear a lot and maybe think they understand, but it's sort of also vague and isn't really yeah. grounded in reality. Like being more mindful, like that sounds lovely, but part of me is like, well, what the fuck does that mean? You know? So exactly I, for you, I would, you know, for your specific life, I would love if you could share some examples of like, how do you practice mindfulness? Like, what does that look like for you? What does that mean? Because it sounds like this sort of nice, like, Buddhist word. You know, like, it has these, like, exactly. lofty connotations. But I'm like, okay, what does it actually look like to do that? So what can you share what's it look, it's looked like for you? So I don't have a full-on idea or definition of what minimalism looks like. But I think, for me, my personality, I've always been one of those person, one of those people that questions why I do the things that I do or why I why people are the way that they are. It helps me understand myself better. It helps me process when something happens to me better. And so I think um, being mindful is just really taking a step back and thinking about what you're doing. So one of the ways that I was mindful like when I had my daughter was okay I was spanked as a kid um and it did nothing for me it wasn't my dad that spanked me it was my stepmom that spanked me and really um my when my dad my dad threatened to spank me one time in my life (laughs) and I will never forget it and he it was just a threat he was he asked me do you want me to spank you in his very thick Kansas accent and I was like no and he was like well I don't want to but I'm really disappointed in your behavior and I'm 20 and I remember that clear as day and all the times that I was spanked by my stepmom never made any daggone sense to me and I think and I, I became an expert at hiding the things that I knew that I didn't want her to find out to avoid spanking as opposed to addressing them right mm-hmm. thinking why am I doing this so but it's intrinsic in me to spank I, I feel like like when your kid does something bad that's what you hear you spank them spoil spare the rod and spoil the child and I knew that that was something that I did not want for my child and so I had to like sit down and address all of that and so 
I did in the backwards way of instead of doing that while I was pregnant, I went to therapy right after I had my daughter and I started addressing those things. And that, in, for me, that was my mindfulness of I don't want to fall into this cycle of violence with my kid. What can I do to be different? What can I do to do things differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was mindful for me is I can't, I don't want to um, feel like shit after I eat cheese because and so what can I do to avoid eating cheese you know things like that just addressing it just looking it in the face I think is what maybe mindfulness is yeah no I love that because I think like minimalism I think mindfulness these words have gotten sort of like so big and unwieldy and we think it's this whole lifestyle and you're either 100% this way or you're not and I, I love your honesty because it's just to me what I'm hearing sort of in between the lines is like, it's just paying attention, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. <laughs> which again, Looking easier said than face. done. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I remember, I don't know if it was on your blog, but, um, something else that I thought was, you know, like a mindful or spoke of mindfulness to me, you were talking about, I think it was when you were pregnant, um, uh, making the conscious choice not to engage so much with social media. I don't know if I'm getting that right, but I feel like I read that somewhere. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that. Oh yeah. Um, so for me, social media can be a very toxic place because, um, well, no, first off, let me preface by saying social media is freaking amazing. Right. But also it can be a toxic place because we get caught up in comparing ourselves to what we think life is supposed to be like. And people typically put their best foot forward on social media like Instagram feeds are gorgeous and pretty and they look like this and I'm like you know why doesn't my kitchen look that, like that my kitchen always looks a fucking mess and why isn't my kid in curated beautiful outfits from small shops and etc cetera, etc cetera. and instead you know the, like we do a really good job of comparing ourselves or beating ourselves up because of social media and so I think I needed, I needed a break. And so I, especially while I was pregnant, I was so conscious of, I need to be at my best so that I can have um, a peaceful birth, so that I can be at peace with myself. And this is not serving me right now. I need to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. So that was my way of protecting myself. Yeah. So facing, looking at it, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's again, it's, I see so much um, commonality between, you know, looking at how you're using social media and evaluating that and, you know, looking at a dress in your closet and does, does this fit me? Do I love that? Like it's the principles again, like they're simple, but they're, I can, it carries over into so many different areas of life. For sure. Yeah. And that's why we say, well, minimalism and mindfulness, I guess now too, it creeps into every bit of you and every bit of your life. Um, so going back to your vision for your hippie commune, (laughs) Uh (laughs) um, in sort of what you described of, you know, growing food and like living off the land. And, you know, I hear a lot of, you know, true sustainability, right. In that Uh vision. And I'm curious, given that that's not your life, right. Where you're doing that uh, 100%, what does sustainability look like for you in the current iteration of your home life? Can you give me some examples of how you sort of explore and honor that? Yeah, of course. Um, So it's something that um, is near and dear to my heart and I don't do it 
as much as I would like to, but I'm on the path to doing that. And some of the ways that I do that, obviously, are by rejecting single-use items like you know your coffee cups when you go to Starbucks they give you those plastic or paper ones that they say are recyclable but are not um, things like that so rejecting single-use things cups plates forks I don't use aluminum foil slash tin foil or um, saran wrap plastic wrap stuff like that in my house I'm really into making sure that I'm buying well I also like to buy secondhand or if I'm not buying secondhand I'm buying really good quality products that I know are going to last me a really long time. Um, I'm, I do lots of things in my community where there's this group where when we're looking for something, let's say we need something. Like the other day I needed a spice grinder and there's someone in my group who doesn't need a spice grinder anymore. So they gave the, they just gave it to me or they sell it at a really low price. So there's things like craigslist free cycle where you can do things like that so i try to buy things secondhand or i try to buy really good quality items that will last me a really long time um i try to shop locally as much as possible so like in the summer we do a community supported agriculture where we pay this fee and then we get our eggs and when we ate meat our meat and vegetables and fruits from local farmers in kansas and so really just trying to go back to basics as much as possible. This year, I want to try and grow. I Like I did a small container garden last year, and it actually ended up giving us a lot of produce that we were so happy with. And so kind of expanding on that this year. And then even with my kid, like making most of her clothes are secondhand. Most of her toys are secondhand um, or they're passed down among my friends. And, you know, I pay it forward. So little things like that, just really being conscious of what I'm bringing into our lives. Mm-hmm. Is there a, when it comes to sort of crafting or doing it yourself or anything like that, is there um, a particular skill that you don't have that you would love to learn more about, you know, this year? Um, I would love to learn how to knit and crochet but I cannot get it for the life of me (laughs) so I I have so many failed attempts and like okay so back to when I wasn't a minimalist I had an entire craft room um full of yarn and knitting needles that that I had abandoned and all of these craft projects that I told myself that I wasn't going to do that I was going to do that I never did and so I have to be super mindful about the crafts that I engage in now, like being realistic about whether or not I'm going to do it because I only have a a small cubby where all my crafts live. And I'm so fond of crafting and trying out different things, but I have to be honest with myself. So as much as I like to say that I love knitting and crafting and crocheting and like to get into it, I don't know if I will. So I'm honing embroidery. That's my thing is, um, is embroidering witty sayings. That's amazing. Um, (laughs) You also, I think I saw this on Instagram that you make your own lotion. Talk to me about that. Talk to me Uh, all about that. Because I feel like the, something I would love to do, I, all of the sort of products, I don't know, shampoos, all the things that I have, I feel like my skin's like still shit. I don't, I don't know. Like it's not working anyway. It's like all trash. So please give me all your secrets. That's what I'm saying. uh, Hey, I'm down. I'm down. Okay. So I, uh, I'm the fan of multi-use products. I I love a good product that I can use on several different things, right? So my husband has really 
itchy skin in the winter to where he used to be like completely miserable and scratching all the time. And he was always buying the lotions, the, the typical lotions that you buy at the store, like St. Ives is supposed to be all healing and lovely or whatever. And it did nothing for him. And we tried the Eucerin and we tried, you know, the higher quality stuff and it really did nothing for him. And so at this point I was like, dude, we just need to get you some shea butter because that's like legit stuff. But I don't like the smell of unrefined shea butter. It smells terrible to me. And so I was like, let me do something with this. And I figured it out and I ended up, and also Hey Friend Hey, um, who's this YouTuber and blogger. And I've literally been obsessed with her for years now. Um, hey friend, hey, if you ever listen to this, I love you. But <laughs> so she has this video on her channel where she made this lotion. I don't know. I think she made it into a, it was like a hair butter and I have natural hair and she was like, but you can also use it on your skin. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm just going to make this. And so I got some unrefined shea butter and I whipped it up with a hand mixer and made this lotion and it really worked well on my partner's skin and I was like this is great and then I just stopped buying lotion and so I've done I mean every now and then especially with my hair when my hair is going through something I will purchase um like, I still need a conditioner, even though I would love to get to the... I've tried, like, the unpackaged conditioner bars, and those just don't do something for someone who has a hair type like mine. And so I need to buy, like, a really thick moisturizing conditioner. But the shampoos, like, the unpackaged shampoo bars, those work really great. If you've ever tried those, I know that Lush has fabulous ones. And I used it and was happy with it. And um, so making your own lotion is really simple, but... Essentially, you warm up a butter of your choice. My favorite butter is mango butter because it's just so moisturizing and it has a really nice smell. But cocoa butter, shea butter, those are all popular butters that you would melt on a double boiler situation on, the, on your stove. And then you let it cool down and then you add more oils. People add anything from almond oil to coconut oil, olive oil, vitamin E oil. And then for scent, you can add whatever you like. Like the batch that I made last week had geranium in it because I'm going through a geranium phase right now. So I had geranium and then lavender essential oil. And I just whip that out once it's like solidified and then you put it in a, a mixer and whip it up and it will turn it into this really lush body butter that just glides on. And it's just, it's so great. Like... It sounds, this is, I'm like almost having, this like sounds erotic. It sounds so nice. Like listening to you explain this, I'm like, just give me it. I want all of it. Exactly. And and I mean, it's the perfect ultimate like multi-use product. I use it on my hair. I use it on my body. My partner uses it on my body. I use it on my kid, her hair, her butt, like diaper cream. I make, I have, I bought, I think she's 19 months now and I've bought two diaper creams, maybe three just for like travel purposes. Cause I, I don't, I want something convenient in her diaper bag, but that's it. And so it's really easy. Like that's another thing is addressing things that you feel like you need, right? Like your shampoos and your bottles and your lotions. Like we're told that we need all this stuff, but you really, you really don't. Mm-hmm. You can, there's ways around these things. Yeah. I mean, and it, with that topic in mind of like the things that we're told that we need, I think that, um, 
that's super true with parenting too. This idea that like parenting and minimalism can't coexist because like kids are so expensive and kids need all of these things and you have to feed them kid food and do this thing. And I mean, obviously, you know, capitalism, right? Like again, exactly. But so I, I would love to hear some examples of a few things that you think that new parents like typically feel like they have to do or buy that you've consciously opted out of or are doing something differently. Well, I didn't get a crib. I had a bassinet. Um, and people's lifestyles are different, right? But I pretty much everything that people said that you need, you may not really need it. It really depends on your lifestyle. And so I would encourage almost waiting it out. And then especially if you if you're gonna buy a lot of it and not your family members, like if someone buys it for you, you can return it and you can get that money and use it on something else. But if it's something that you're going to have to purchase with your own money, number one, I would recommend getting it secondhand first or seeing if you can source it from the people around you um, who have kids, family members that had kids, friends, things like that. But it, it's a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, you're told that you need all these kinds of toys and gadgets and gadgets, and I re- you really don't need that with kids. They... I was I was really hell-bent on not being onto my daughter about, oh, my God, you have to pick up, you have to clean up your room, you have to. I wanted her room to be very accessible for her, uh, where, you know, she can see all her clothes and pick her clothes up, pick her outfit for the day. She has access to all her toys. They have a place to go. And so it really... I think going on a case-to-case basis, I don't know, like some people, and I cloth diapered too, so the things that I needed from for my daughter, like I didn't need, why I don't, I don't need oodles and oodles and oodles of um, diapers and wipes because I also, I also use cloth wipes, so. Okay, wait, so talk to me, t- give me the real talk about the cloth diaper situation. What's your routine for that? Okay, so I'm obsessed. I love cloth diapers. Um, there's so many different kinds I was cloth diapered, and so I knew that I wanted to cloth diaper my kid. And there's pockets, there's covers, but essentially what I use now, and this is dirt cheap, and I wish I had done this from the beginning, but you go to, like, Target or Walmart, and you get flour sack towels. Um, these are towels that people use as tea towels or whatever. So you fold that. You can look on YouTube. There's a way that you fold it into a rectangle. And so if your child is not a heavy wetter, you lay down one rectangle. If their child is a heavy wetter, like at night, I use two rectangles. <laughs> They're called flats. And then a cover, a diaper cover. If you're a qualified seamstress or seamster man, I don't know what, <laughs> what a male seamstress is. <laughs> but yeah, if you're good at sewing, you can make your own covers. And you just lay two of those down and then you snap on the diaper cover and they're good to go. And so I do lie diaper laundry once or twice a week, and the, my husband built me a clothesline last um, last summer. So I had so much fun being outside with her. She wasn't quite yet walking; she was still very much crawling. So it was a really good opportunity for her to be outside and to learn. And you know, she was on the ground on like a blanket, but she was looking around. And I would hang her diapers up on the clothesline. I actually did all our laundry. I'd wash it in the washing machine and then hang it all out outside. So it was this really another way for me to just slow down and enjoy you know an hour or two well it really didn't take that long maybe 15 20 minutes outside with my kid and um yeah so cloth diaper when we use cloth wipes and so I wash them once a week or 
twice a week in the washing machine and then the winter I use the dryer to dry them but it's just it saved me so much money it's so much better for the environment because I'm not sending tons and tons of diapers to the landfills and you, you know they, they don't talk about the stuff that's in diapers like chemicals and out and toxins and all that stuff but there's a lot of stuff in there that's not really good for your kids but Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so much of the the type of stuff, like I feel like that diapers are a really good example. I think that someone would have a lot of resistance to just because it's not what they know or it's unfamiliar. And I think yeah. just, I don't know, I love this idea of like, we'll just try, right? Like get over yeah. the initial hurdle of like, well, yeah, it's probably going to be weird at first, right? Or like you're used yeah. to just throwing this out and like having there be like no mess and it be, I don't know, but it's like- Yeah, what? and you you build a routine and- you build a routine and you and you get over it and you get around it and it ends up being really I mean if you're doing it for a reason right if I wasn't doing it for the reasons that I was doing it then I maybe I would see it as a chore but I had this conscious choice that I don't want to contribute to landfill waste also I'm broke as shit and I really don't want to be spending that much money on diapers so I'm gonna cloth diaper and so I've stuck to it yeah so yeah, I mean, it's it's so evident in just listening to you talk how thoughtful you are and how conscious you are about your choices and specifically with your parenting. And it makes me want to ask how you think about the responsibility of being a role model for your daughter. Like, what are you consciously trying to model for her or like as she gets older? Jeez, like, I, I live in fear of not fucking her up. <laughs> that's a very real answer. I'm sure, again, I'm not a parent, but I would assume that that's really common. Everyone's like, oh my God, how do I just like not kill this small being and like fuck her up? Yeah. Right, right. There was this, uh, there was this, uh, oh my God, I don't remember what his name was, but there's this comedian that I used to be obsessed with. Um, but he had this joke about how a kid is like having a blank CD that you download all your shit onto. <laughs> and so I was like, how do I not be that? <laughs> and so I think that's how I, I think about what I want the world to be like for her and what I want her to experience. And, and so I'm reading this book, which I've been fucking reading this book for forever. And I can't wait to be done with it. It's really good, though. It's called The Conscious Parent by Shafali Tabari, Dr. Shafali, and she talks about how your these kids have these unique, your kid is born already with this unique sense of who they are and what they're going to be like, and we kind of ruin it as parents, not, uh, not knowingly and not on purpose sometimes, but we stifle them because of the way that we were raised and the way that we were trained or the way that society says that they should be and and so, so certain people end up not knowing what they're truly like because of the way that they're raised it's this whole thing if you're interested just read the book because I'm not doing it a good job of explaining it okay but um really I was like okay how do I allow her to be her true to herself and so um I also am like a horoscope um believer i know that a lot of people aren't in the give shit they give they no give i'm into it i'm into all of it okay good so i'm a capricorn right and first off i feel like we're the most underrated horoscope out there but we're also like kind of dicks we're a little bit rigid and and it's a self-protection mechanism and then my daughter's a cancer and cancers are very um sensitive and sweet and uh, emotional 
And so I'm like, okay, how do I make sure that my dickness and my rigidity doesn't like stifle my daughter's emotional needs? You know, like I want her to be able to be comfortable in expressing herself as much as she needs to be. I want her to be confident in her voice because I wasn't confident in my voice. My voice was stifled a lot. I was told that I had to be this way and do this a lot growing up. A girl does this and a girl is like this. And, you know, and so a lot of my finding my voice has happened now that I'm an adult. Like I have still so much work to do. And so I don't want my daughter to have to do the work. Like it's so much harder to fix a broken adult than it is to just like not be a dick to a kid. So that's my goal. <laughs> is to just I love it. <laughs> Um, how did you and your husband meet? Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> I love telling this story. So I was in a play at my, at our university. We went to the same university here and his younger brother was in the play. And, uh, I played a Congolese prostitute, by the way. Actually, the play was about, um, the story of the civil war in Congo and, you know, the, Essentially, Congo is one of the only places that you can mine coltan, which is what we use to for our phone batteries. You need coltan. So basically, the entire economy and people and everything was ravaged because we need our iPhones, right? But that's a story for another day. So I play. I was in this play, and his younger brother was in the play, and his dad used to come watch his other son in the play every day. And then on, like, the night before closing night, Tony, that's my husband, came to watch the play. And by this time, we all knew his dad. And I was super close with his younger brother. Like, I had adopted him as my baby brother. And Anthony, so I'm introduced to Anthony, Tony. And we were both like, how come I've never seen you? I know, like, four black people on this campus. And clearly, like, we were both like, I've never seen you before. Because there were so few black people at my college at the time that we pretty much all knew each other or knew of each other. And um, we just got to talking briefly. Like, I didn't even remember. Well, I did remember, but I wasn't even like, oh, my God, who is this guy? I was just like, okay, bye. <laughs> and then the next day, um, he got his younger brother to send flowers to my dressing room. And I was like, what? Because my experiences with American boys at the time, not men, because I was still, mm, a kid and um, I was like I was blown away I was like wow look at this person this is nice and so I texted him thank you because he put his number on the card the card said because you are beautiful and then his phone number so I texted him thank you and then we got to talking and yeah six years this year down the line here we are <laughs> yeah so <laughs> being in that play playing a sex worker and now here you are exactly <laughs> that is a good story that's <laughs> i don't know that i've ever heard a similar story i'm into that um you mentioned before um that you weren't sure that you wanted to have kids and mm -hmm. you know not this isn't something that you were just like planning on maybe fantasizing mm -hmm. about so when that became the reality and what was that what was going to happen i'm curious sort of what the conversations were like with your partner, right? Like, what was it like to sort of navigate that? Oh, okay, well, this is going to happen now. Well, so he had always known that he wanted to have kids. Um, as a matter of fact, like once we got to talking to each other, he had decided that he wanted me to be the mother of his children. And so <laughs> no I wasn't, I know, right? <laughs> so I wasn't on board yet. I wasn't on board for a really long time. 
But in a nutshell, once the time came when we found out that I was pregnant, he was he was scared, and I and I wasn't. I was like, oh, sorry, that's okay. What's <laughs> your daughter, like, What's your daughter's name? Pendyway. Okay, it's like well, we're hearing her, so she has a role know, in this right? podcast too. Okay, <laughs> yeah, she's like, um, I hear that you're talking about me, so so I want to make my voice heard because you just said that that was important. So <laughs> exactly. Um, but in a nutshell, he wasn't as ready as I was at this point because this is another this other thing that Dr. Shafali talks about in her book is like. I just had this feeling that, oh, my God, this, because like any other time, if it had been an accident or something had happened, I would have taken a plan B, like, like it was candy. Like I wouldn't have been worried about it. But I felt like, oh, my God, this, I'm ready for this particular kid, um, this child. I'm ready for her. I'm scared shitless. And so I just kind of, it was funny to me because I was like sure of it and he was the one now scared. So the roles were reversed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about, or rather that you wanted to talk about that you mentioned um, in your email, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear more about, you said something that you wanted to talk about was prenatal and postnatal care for women of color. And you didn't sort of provide any other thing other than that statement. It caught my attention. Um, so yeah, anything in that that you would love to talk about, I'm, I'm interested in. Sure. So so my my pregnancy and my birth, so the experiences that women of color have in birthing in the United States is different. Uh, well, not even not only the United States, but in the West as well. Is just that I'll give the perfect example of when I was when I found out that I was pregnant. I wanted I knew like I knew the next day after conception I knew I was pregnant, and obviously tests weren't coming back positive yet. Um, I went and got a blood test. It came back negative. Like and I was like, but I insisted that I was pregnant, and so I went to a hospital, and my insurance was still in flux, and I was seen, and they were like, "Is the father in the picture?" Like they were asking all these like weird questions that I wasn't sure. That's another thing navigating the United States is like, I don't know if people are asking me questions because I'm black, or they honestly want to know like. People have asked me before, can you even afford this? And I'm like, are you asking me this because I'm black? Or if, or like, why are you asking me these questions? Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, there's other things that are blatant, like people following you in stores and stuff like that. There's blatant forms of racism. But then there's really submer- submiss- subversive racism that happens to black women, especially in maternal care. Like the stories of Erica Garner and her birth experiences before she died. Serena Williams and her birth experiences where she was telling them that she needed help, but no one believed her until, like, thank God, she she was able to use her voice loud enough. And But she shouldn't have had to do that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So there's lots of experiences like that. So black women, three to four, they are more likely to die giving birth three to four times more than white women are. And there's several reasons, I'm sure, but racism is the main reason. And um, it's not overt racism, but I think that was something that was really important for me because growing up, when someone gave birth for three months, they were kind of isolated with their kid and they were taken care of. And well, a mother is isolated with a kid and she's taken care of. And her only responsibility is 
herself and the child and everything else. But in the United States, as soon as you give birth, like you leave the hospital and you're kind of on your own. Yeah. And so there was a lot, I was privileged enough to have access to, um, you know, mental health services and, my brother flew in from Botswana and he came and stayed with me for two weeks. He was such a godsend, especially since Tandiwe was in the NICU for nine days. But that's not the case. Like postpartum care is not the case for a lot of women in this country and especially women of color too. Mm-hmm. So it just became something that I was really passionate about. Like at some point I'm considering maybe becoming a postpartum doula. I don't know who, who knows where the future, but it's just a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there for for anyone who's also interested in this topic? Potentially, like maybe it's learning more. Or is there anyone um, that you've learned a lot from that you would recommend, either like a book to read or you know someone for folks to follow? Um, there's uh, there's a bunch of black doulas and midwives online. I know I'm not going to remember her name now. Oh, I don't know. No, I'm blanking on her name. But if just researching uh, black outcomes, birth outcomes for women of color in Mm -hmm. the West, I think is a good place to start. And just being conscious of that, I think. And then also, if you're a woman and you're black and you're listening to this, making sure that, you know, you're getting those supportive services, hiring a postpartum doula for yourself, hiring a doula for yourself, hiring those people that can help you navigate um, birth, pregnancy, in a way that the, you know, the medical system doesn't always have your best interests at heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. So, yeah. 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 Um, so before we start to wrap up, is there anything that hasn't come up in this conversation that you want to share or discuss anything else that's on your mind and heart? No, I, I feel really good about what we talked about today. Okay. So the way that we end these are with a series of sort of rapid fire ish questions. Um, it's essentially questions that, um, people in the Patreon community have put forth and, uh, basically all the guests of this same season are answering the same seven questions. So seven, just kind of random questions. Um, if you are down to answer some random questions, I'm ready. So if you had a completely free afternoon all to yourself, just for you next week, how would you most love to spend it? Oh my God. Um, I would like to sit in a hammock. Well, I'd like, first off, I'd like for it to be summer. So to make that happen. (laughs) And then I'd like to just be outside in my hammock with a book and an iced beverage and maybe work on my garden a little bit. I mean, listen, that's my best life. Summer, hammock, book, ice, beverage. I am into that. (laughs) Sounds amazing. Um, What feels most important to you this year? Ooh, learning. Learning anything specific? No, just constantly learning and growing. Mm. Um, You know, maybe it is shedding old ideas and beliefs that you had and learning new things. But yeah, just I think education and learning and and not in the traditional sense of going to school, but I think a lot of self-evaluation and and mindfulness, right? (laughs) So yeah, a lot of learning and discovering myself again, I think Mm -hmm. is really important. I love that. What's one place in your town where you live that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? Do you have a favorite restaurant, coffee shop, park, anything? 
yes, the lake, Lake Shawnee is my favorite place. I love being around water. I like going on water and I love going to the lake whenever I can. What's something that's working really well in your life right now that feels easy and vibrant and flowing? Motherhood. Mm. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, so looking back, what's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in your life? Hmm. Oh my goodness. What? Uh, maybe if I had stayed a nursing student, because that's initially what I thought I was going to go to school for was nursing. Hmm. And then I joined that play and it like rocked my world. And I was like, oh no, I can't be a nursing student. And then you joined that play and then you met your partner. And then, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and I switched majors. Isn't it funny though? I often think about, I mean, you never know how one little decision is going to set you on a different path, but that when someone brought that question up, I latched onto it really quick because I I love to think about that. I mean, sometimes it stresses me out, but if you go back and think, wow, if I would have just like taken a right turn here instead of a left, right, what would have been different or would I have met my partner? Would I have, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, actually not even, not even though I love him, it's not about him. What it is, is I took an intro to women's and gender studies course, just that course ruined like ruined my life in the best way I dropped out for like a couple semesters to figure myself out because it the the life that, that I had known the world that I had known it was a lie so I had to figure it out <laughs> burn it all down patriarchy yeah. burn it down yeah. yeah essentially that's what it was and that that's led amazing. me to I that's I had time in my schedule to do that play after I had dropped out and just like all this stuff so it was this whole thing so I guess taking that class was what if I hadn't done that, my life would have been completely different. That's so interesting. Um, so the next question is about books. Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Okay, without a doubt, the books that had the biggest impact on me were Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series. I mean, I, there was such a huge form of escape for me like this is not going to be a, a classy like answer like oh my god I'm so sophisticated no it's literally it's the the entire Harry Potter series was so integral to keeping me sane as a kid I so. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan uh however I didn't read them until I was an adult and I'm always really almost jealous of people who had that experience of it, like mm-hmm. growing up, like one book at a time. I mean, I, I read them all literally in the same week. I like didn't move oh. for a week. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I did the same with the Game of Thrones series. I like lost an entire summer reading those books. Like I don't remember that summer at all. But yeah, Harry Potter, like getting to look forward to each single book and just immersing in it. it yeah, it was so great. I'm I can't wait to read those to my daughter. I was just going to say, are you so excited to, yeah, to read those with and to her? Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. She has her own set. Those are the ones that I didn't purge. They're ready for her. That's amazing. Um, it's so good. Any other books that come to mind? Um, no, I mean the long, long, the long walk to freedom, which is Nelson Mandela's yeah. story of his life was also a really good read for me, but no, I love too many books. Yeah, I hear you. Totally. I know when people ask me this question, I'm like, it's the best and worst question. I'm like, I don't know. What are you interested in? What genre do you want? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? 
leave this earth better than how you found it. Mm. I love that. That's, that's something that I tell myself a lot. And that, that's what I work on every day. Yeah. And I love that too, because it's to be interpreted, you know, for each person, what that means to them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, Instagram works. The Hillbilly African is my ID name or um, my website as well, thehillbillyafrican.com. Oh, yeah. I can't let you leave without asking, how did you come up with that amazing name? The Hillbilly African <laughs> is like, when I saw your URL, I was like, all right, this is, I got to hear this story. <laughs> well, um, so I'm half Kansan and then half Zimbabwean. And so I'm really in touch with my African heritage, but I'm also really super in touch with my Kansas heritage. I'm proud of it. And I wanted something that really tied in both those aspects of me. I, you know, like when, you, when you're coming up with a blog name, you should write about, your blog should be essentially about, um, your blog name should be about what you do or whatever. But I was like, no, it's going to be about who I am. And this is me. Like, I'm a super like rural country but also I love Africa so like how do I make how do I tie those both together so that's my name in a nutshell and it's incredibly memorable so as far as like from a branding perspective like that's amazing um awesome well I will put links to all of those things and everything else you mentioned in the show notes thank you so much thank you I had fun And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now and has been for a while a 100% listener supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nicole. So you ready to answer some uh, hopefully fun rapid fire questions? Yes, I am. You were so funny before we started recording. Don't ask me any hard questions. (laughs) So hopefully these aren't too hard. Um, Of course, my favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? I am obsessed with my New York guidebook because as I just mentioned to you, I'm going there in two weeks to be to sing at Carnegie Hall. So I am all things New York at the moment. I watched um, When Harry Met Sally last night just to try <laughs> and start getting myself into the New York mood. Oh, that's so funny. You know, did you ever watch the show Gossip Girl? No. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's your thing or not. I'm like into <laughs> like angsty teen drama, beautiful people situations. However, that show, I feel like New York is an extra character in. Like I watched it um, after I had left New York because that's where I grew up. And every time I watch it, I always mm-hmm. have this like fierce desire to go home. So <laughs> anyway. Oh, I'll have to get a few episodes in before I go. It's very New York. Um, what's one thing that you feel like you're seriously kicking ass at so far in 2018? What's going well? I, um, I, my day job, I'm a retail manager for a charity, but I also sit on the board of trustees for another charity. And we've just had a really amazing board meeting. And I've done a couple of papers running up to it just to kind of um, have a think about what we want to do with the strategy. And we met this week, and it just feels really exciting, like it's really coming together. And um, it's a bit different for me. So my day job, I'm very much in the doing, but this is more about me as a strategic person. So it was just really nice to get together with the board and just see how far we've come over the last year and see all the plans and presentations for what's coming in the future. Oh, that's exciting. Mm. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Uh, 
that's an easy one. Sweet potato, avocado and halloumi. Oh, that's an easy one. And yet not something that I think I have ever heard someone answer to that question. So I like it. That's well, I just They're my three kind of favorite foods and they all go well together. Yeah, mix it all together. Yeah, into that. Um, Who do you need to write a thank you note to this week? Or like if you had to pick someone that you really want to thank or express gratitude to right now, who would it be? That would be my friend, Kath. Uh, We met at work a few years ago and she's now left, but she's also a yoga teacher. So I do a yoga class with her once a week. Um, And her class this week was really awesome. My back was sore and I went and I did all the yoga stuff and stretched out and felt really good afterwards. And then we also went for a tea afterwards and had one of our chats where we kind of put the worlds to rights. And I just came away from that feeling so energized and really good. So I would say a big thank you to her. All right, there we go. Huge shout out to your friend, Kath like it. Um, last question. What's one thing that you've been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Oh, I think that would probably be the compromises that people make in their, per- in their personal lives to be happy. Um, so, you know, you, you see couples together and they're really, really happy, but there's, there's probably something that's not quite right for them or someone that looks like they've got like these perfect lives from the outside, but on the inside, there's probably something that's not quite right for them. And we tend to gloss over the things that aren't going so well, um, and just celebrate all the good stuff. And I just wish sometimes people would be a bit more honest and say, actually, that's really hard for me. Yeah. I love that idea of like talking about what compromises we're making. I like the idea of like being open about intentional compromises. Cause like you said, nothing's perfect. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put up with something awful, but I think in any relationship or career or even like anything, there's always going to be some stuff that you're like, well, this part isn't ideal, but it's outweighed by all these other things. So I'm choosing to make this compromise to, yeah, that's Ooh, I like that. I'm going to be thinking about that one. So um, you're a member of our Patreon community, Patreon Support Squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe something you've enjoyed about the community. Mm, Okay. So I found you on the internet a long, long time ago, back when you had a blog and I loved your writing and I loved how bold you were, particularly when you just deleted that blog. (laughs) It was, it was really powerful to watch from the other side of the world. And when you launched your podcast, I'd never listened to podcasts before, but I thought, well, I, I like what you do in your writing. So I'd give it a go. And um, absolutely loved it. That first season was incredible. And I think I followed most of the guests on Instagram or signed up to their newsletters. But I can't remember which season it was in, but you started to talk about how you were funding the podcast or, or how you were affording to make it. And it just suddenly clicked. I hadn't really thought about it. I just assumed that because you were making something that that was just all hunky-dory and working out. Um, and you say that this phrase, it's about, um, you know, being part of the Patreon community is about um, a real-time vote about how you want the world to be. And when you launched that it just made so much sense and I thought I can't not um, sign up for this because I love the podcast if I'm feeling like I need a bit of motivation or I just need to kind of get out of my own head I pick an episode and I put it on and I'm transported and I hear all of this inspirational stuff so why wouldn't I want to pay for that so I think it was when you started talking about how you were funding it that it just made complete sense to me and I do it in all other aspects of my life I try and buy coffee from an independent shop I like to go to small makers for presents so why would I not pay for great content as well that's, I mean, thank you for that. And that's such a good point too, of like in all the other areas, if we're really intentional about where things are coming from, like that, that can carry over into the media we consume and everything like that. 
Yeah. Do you have, have you had a favorite thing since joining the community? Um, I love the, um, the book chats that you do. I don't always join in cause I sometimes find it hard to, to read all the time, but the, you most recently, I think we're reading, um, Oh, Rebecca Son, it's a field guide to getting lost, which is, is just brilliant. And I love seeing what other people think about that and just getting those little sparks of ideas for kind of internet rabbit holes to go down and find out about other people. Yeah, the book club's been really fun. I didn't realize like what a sense of responsibility I would feel like choosing a book for other people to read. Especially if it's a book that I haven't read, right? That I'm like, well, we'll see, question mark, you know, but um, yeah, everyone's been really uh, responsive. And yeah, I agree with you. It's really nice to get other people's perspective on, you know, different stuff. And um, yeah, the, I mean, for me, selfishly, the community has been so fun. Starting to do the live events has been so fun. So, Oh, how could I not mention the live event? The one in London last year was brilliant. Okay. Was that so great? So. It was so good to meet you. I had like, I think about that often. I like go back through my pictures because I mean, that was the first live event. That was really the test of, is this going to be something, you know, and now I have, you know, four coming up in the next few months. And yeah, that was such a special day for me. Yeah, you need to come and do another one in London because um, I definitely would come again and America's just Listen, a bit too far to go. That, I mean, I don't know when, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be this year, but I had such, I mean, you know, I used to live in London and I hadn't been mm. there in 18 years. And so that whole trip was just a whirlwind of incredible, it was just like one incredible thing after another and our live event was just like the peak of it. And yeah, it would be really fun to come back over. So yeah. sometime for it sure. So good. So yeah, do it, do it sometime. All right. All right. You've convinced me. <laughs> um, to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras. Just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 